I'm Nimi and I'm Ritu from Adventurize this is Venturing Beyond a podcast where we delve into the career stories of ambitious individuals Hello and welcome to Venturing Beyond today we have with us Suzanne who is the head of ESG investment integration at a large asset manager based out of Boston She has also worked in management consulting and as a venture capitalist in the past. So it's going to be a great conversation talking about sort of her portfolio of careers working in these different fields. And I'm really excited to learn more about working in investment banking in general and all that you have been able to do through several years of your career, Suzanne. So welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be part of your effort. and and learn more about what you're doing and share my experience with your audience. Great. Just to start off, um like I just mentioned you work in ESG investment integration. Sounds extremely fancy, but we'd like to know what does it mean and what is it that you do and uh where does it fall into, you know, uh investment management in general? <laughs> So as you mentioned I work for uh one of the largest asset managers um globally. Uh we're headquartered out we're headquartered in Boston but we have clients throughout the globe. Um my remit at the organization is to head up our ESG investment integration activities. And what does that mean? Well, it actually means a lot of different things. I, I wear many hats uh you could say. Uh but my primary focus is to work with our investment teams to ensure that they're integrating ESG metrics or factors and principles into their in both their investment process so how they determine uh which companies to invest in and also um to create investment products or strategies so that our clients can um put their dollars to work from an ESG perspective uh so again you know what is ESG investing period so let me just start there you know ESG investing uh so the E stands for environment S stands for social and the G stands for governance and what it is it's the integration of factors related to the E S and G into an, in either an investment decision or as an objective in an investment strategy And for example, um think about climate change. You know, climate change is certainly on the top of all of our minds these days. Uh and what we're trying to do is create products or investment vehicles that allow investors to use their money to positively influence and affect um climate change uh and carbon reduction um in all things that relate to, you know, kind of reversing some of the da- or reversing or really stopping a lot of the damage that's already incurred to our planet. So, um and before, you know, just recently, uh investments were more mostly focused on just a return basis, but what we're seeing is our clients uh and investors in general are looking to use their dollars to create an impact as well as a return. So, is this something that you're seeing increasing in the US or or what does ESG perspective globally look like mm so it's interesting you know ESG investing has been around for some time i want to say 
you know, our organization has been involved in ESG investing for going on 30 or maybe even over 30 years at this point. And it's really evolved over time. And the reason it's evolved is due to data. There wasn't really a lot of data that was available so that we could utilize to make our investment decisions. But most recently in the last five years, um, as disclosure has picked up, there has been just an abundance of ESG data available. Um, now, although it's, it's been around for a long time, um, it's really, it is certainly a, a global um, function as it relates to interest. You know, where we're, we're, we're seeing most of the demand right now is in Europe, in the UK. And par that's partly uh, due to the fact that they're just so much more advanced as it, re as it relates to ESG, both investing and activities. Um, also, there's been a number of regulations uh, and uh, litigation uh, legislation uh, related to ESG investing and disclosures in particular. So that market is much more mature from an ESG perspective than say the US. However, with the Biden administration, uh, we're really catching up fast. And I, I, it's really hard at this point to open up a newspaper in the US and not see a story or a reference to climate change or um, socioeconomic um, issues such as you know, racial equality. And in, in, in addition to climate change, those are also uh, ESG factors that are now becoming mainstream that people want to influence positively and investment organizations uh, ha you know, have a lot of power uh, you know, through the investments to really influence positive change. And so we're seeing that more and more and I expect that that will continue as we have more and more regulations that are coming into effect, um, both globally and domestically in the US. Taking a step back, if you were to meet someone who's just thinking of starting to study finance or just one or just mm -hmm. has graduated studying finance, but doesn't really know much about the world of investment or the world of asset management, how would you describe it? So I would I would divide the world of and I'm gonna I'm gonna take this as finance meaning in the investment world because there's also corporate finance. There's a number of different kinds of finances that include accounting. Well, I'd say stay away from accounting. Um, well, I, I'm just, I have a degree in accounting and I did work for Ernst & Young for a number of years. And I realized that I really wanted to do something that was more dynamic than, than typical accounting, which there's nothing wrong with it. Um, it's just, it's hard to make a positive impact or any sort of, you know, long lasting general impact um, in, in most uh, accounting functions. Uh, so, how I would describe the investment world is I divide it into two different large categories. So I would I would divide into the the public markets and the private markets. Okay, so the public markets are the is the market where there are publicly traded securities. So you think about companies, um, as you probably know, you know companies are typically private or they're public. Um, if they're public, their stocks are, are publicly traded on a market or on um, either that be a NASDAQ or the Dow or any. I mean, there's, there's probably hundreds of them um, and they do vary by region. Uh, whereas a private company are companies that are held by a small amount of investors 
and not publicly traded on, on the market. Um, and there are careers in both fields. And, and actually, I started my career in the private market and then moved to the public market. Um, so I, I'd say the difference the difference is vast because in the public market, there are a lot more regulations um, than there are in the private market. So if you're interested in looking at um, the, part, the public market is also, in a sense, it's, it's interesting because it's in a sense bigger, but really it's smaller. So the number of public companies are certainly, they appear to be larger than the private only because the transparency. There's a lot of, when you're, if you're a public company, um, you're subject to a lot of transparency, where if you're a private company, you're not so much. So um, the types of jobs that you could go into in the public market would, could be something like myself, which is an asset management. And basically what asset management means is that you're managing a pool of assets. And State Street has two channels where we manage assets. And it's, um, there's the institutional, which is the advisors. So, and that is a retail channel. And then there's the institutional channel, which is the larger organization. So that would be managing money for large institutions, oftentimes their, their, their pension or retirement plans. Uh, and when we, we do so, uh, typically we're investing into the public markets, although we do have some small exposure into the private markets. So you could, and in the public market, there's also opportunities like you know, being a trader, being a portfolio manager. Um, there's of course, a number of operational finance and accounting positions as well. And those, and those operational positions are also in the private market. Then the private markets where we, we see more of private equity, venture capital, also infrastructure and, and real estate, uh, where uh, real estate, real assets. So it's a little bit different because you're not dealing with, you're oftentimes in the private market dealing with an early stage company, whereas in the public market, companies typically don't go public if they're early stage. So you're dealing with a, a more of a later stage company doesn't necessarily uh, mean it's a big company. It's just not in uh, an early growth stage. Um, but in the private markets, you could be dealing with a company that is at, you know, idea phase. Um, and this is where all the popular companies such as Google um, and, you know, I, I don't want to date myself because most of the internet companies that I, uh, that you know, resonate with me uh, went public a long time ago. But you know, you know Tesla, and, and you, you, they're just they're just household names. But they were all private companies before they went onto the public market. So, you know, you in within the private market too, you have a, you have the early stage investing, and you have the late stage investing. So, there are so many different options um, in the investment world, and I think it's really important to get a firm understanding of what they are. Um, and that will help you determine where you might be best suited for. And one more thing is it's really hard to make a determination of where you think you should be when you haven't even tried it yet. So I would suggest, you know, going into, you know, finding a firm that has a good culture, that has a lot of opportunities is probably better than, to, better than focusing on a specific position. Because once you get into an organization, Oftentimes, there's plenty of room to move around and to explore. 
So I think what uh, is, is really good is really identify more of the organization itself and what it has to offer than a specific position uh, at an organization with less opportunity. And I think that's really important when, early on in your career. So, you know, always challenge authority. Just because someone is in a leadership position doesn't necessarily mean they know what they're doing or that they're right. So you always have to kind of think for yourself. So if something doesn't seem right, it might not be. Um, but when you go about challenging it, you have to be careful too, because you don't want to necessarily be disrespectful or alienate yourself in another way. But what I find is sometimes with young people, they assume that if someone is the most senior person on a team or in a company that they have all the answers. I can tell you that they don't, not even close. Um, you know, when you get to a certain level or, or a position of career, you, you need to present yourself as confident in, in having all the answers because otherwise it, it, you know, that's how you get people to you know, buy into your, your um, vision, what have you. But there's always room for another perspective, okay? So if you have another perspective, you know, share that perspective, um, but just be smart about how you share it. So maybe you share it privately or you, you don't necessarily stand up in a room full of people and um, contradict someone. I mean, that's probably not great for your career, um, but you know, I just want people to always think and, and just because you're new to something or you know, might not feel like you have all the answers, um, no one has all the answers and no one's always right. So always think, outside the box. And if you have a different perspective, always share it. Uh, so you mentioned that uh, you worked in a, a couple other fields before you get started with what you do now with ESG. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what your you know, career journey looked like right from when you graduated college to now? So when I, I went to college, undergrad at Boston College, and I was lucky that the school had a very good um, career or job placement center. Companies didn't come to Boston College for everything, but they were there were certain targeted areas. And before going to BC, I knew that the big it was the big six accounting firms at the time, where I was like, now I think it's only four of them. Um, I knew that Boston College was a school that the firms heavily recruited from, which is one of the reasons I went there. My goal was to uh, get a degree in accounting and get a job at a big six firm, which I did. Uh, but you know, frankly, I, I didn't. I wasn't didn't really have a strong interest in accounting, or finance, or investments. Um, but I knew I wanted to be financially independent, and that was kind of my goal. I also didn't have any specific strong interest in any particular. Um, occupation, and I and I certainly don't have any skills as it relates to performance arts or anything like that. So it wasn't as if I had a gift that I that would allow me to have a career. So I went into accounting really uh, so that I could start my life and aim towards financial independence. Um, 
but I realized quickly while I was at Ernst & Young that accounting wasn't for me. It was too black and white. Uh, it was too binary in the sense that I am, I consider myself a very creative person. And I, I like to think outside the box. I actually think outside the box a lot. I, I, I can't help myself. Uh, so thinking outside the box in an accounting um, organization is bad. You have to stay in the box. Uh, that's very important to stay in the box. So it wasn't necessarily a good fit. So I, it didn't stay for very long. I was there for about two years. And then I moved on to um, an investment banking organization that did a lot of um, some equity, some debt, uh, kind of syndicate banking. And, and from there, um, I went into the venture capital uh, industry where I really loved. And I, I think I loved, I think that was probably um, some of the best or the best times of my career, frankly, um, working with the entrepreneurs. It was early stage. It was in the middle of the internet bubble or the dot-com bubble. So this is around, this is late nineties to about two, 2001. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And, and again, that was the private market. Um, then the internet bubble happened and that was a really interesting time because it was our, it was basically the first market downturn I experienced in my career. So it was a really scary time. Um, but once that happened, I decided that maybe it's a good time to go to business school. So I went to business school and after business school, I joined Fidelity Investments and I worked there for a number of years for uh, 12 years actually. And I did a number of uh, roles, primarily those in the investment world, uh, either in product or strategy. Um, and it was at Fidelity that I was first introduced to ESG investing. And I want to say that was around 2010. It was still relatively new. Um, and I tried, to, I followed it for a while. Um, I, you know, I, I was very, I got becoming, became even more interested when the PRI was established. Um, and then I did have an opportunity late in my career at Fidelity to focus on ESG, uh, not exclusively, but definitely more so, which I did. Uh, but I, I quickly recognized that as an organization, Fidelity wasn't at the level of commitment um, in ESG investing that I, I felt we should be and that I, where I wanted to work. So I, I had, I received the opportunity to come to my current employer um, to, build out their ESG product suite. Um, and that was about four years ago. And I've been there since. So, uh, you know, I think it's, it's been a wonderful journey. It's been a long journey, uh, 25 years in the experience, uh, 25 years experience in financial services. Uh, but I can't, I, don't, I can't think of anywhere I'd rather be. So, you know, I think it's important to remember is where you start out doesn't, doesn't, you define where you're going to end up because when I started um, at Ernst & Young, I didn't even know what venture capital was, but I ended up spending eight years of my career in it. And I certainly didn't know anything about ESG investing. I mean, it certainly existed, but it didn't, it didn't exist at the level it, it is today. Um, but I, I was, if you had asked me where I thought I was going to be in 25 years, I couldn't, or in how I got there, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. You know, you mentioned something very interesting about 
you know, wanting to be financially independent and being super clear about that during your early years of career, right? And I'm kind of curious about that because a lot of time the career-related advice that we get is sort of, you know, follow your passions and understand what is it that, you know, motivates you to wake up early and go to bed satisfied and, you know, the kinds of things you would love to do for multiple hours every single day. And certainly that's, you know, if, if you're someone who knows what your passion is and something that aligns with what you see, uh, your, where you see yourself in a few years and it works, it's great. So looking back now, after so many years of, you know, doing these multiple things that you have, what do you think about, you know, your younger self making that decision about working in auditing or taxation with the sole goal of, you know, wanting to be financially independent? What is your perspective on that now? So to your point, I, I didn't have any one thing that I was so passionate about that I wanted to spend my life doing. Um, it certainly I had interests and hobbies and those type of thing, but they, there was nothing there that could pay my rent or buy groceries. Uh, so, you know, it, it, and I'm, I'm a bit of a realist. Um, so, you know, I really took a, you know, a pragmatic view. Uh, I grew up, you know, and in that the part part of that is just you know how I grew up. I mean, I grew up in um, a single family household, a single parent household, where um, you know we didn't have a lot of resources, and there were times when we struggled financially. So I saw my mother um, ha- having to work really hard um, for not much. Uh, and I saw that uh, because she didn't uh, pursue a career um, and instead you know, got married and had children and uh, for a time was a stay-at-home mom, it left her in you know, a, a tough situation. So I recognized quickly that I didn't want to be in that situation. I didn't want to be financially dependent on anyone. So that's where my goal of becoming financially independent was, you know, early, really, I guess, established. Um, and because I kind of lived through what it was like not to be in a household where it was really difficult uh, from a financial perspective, um, I knew that I didn't want to experience that as an adult. So uh, that's why it was my focus. Um, and I and I believe that once I was financially independent, I could then find things or have the opportunities to you know search out my passions uh, and find things that I wanted to do, but but to do them more um, as a hobby versus a career. Uh, and I picked accounting because uh, yeah, what I did was I looked at what jobs uh, had high salaries and were that I, I thought would were sustainable in the sense that they wouldn't go away. I guess I feel like you know, we could all, we'll always need accountants. Well, so and, and it's, it's a broad field. And I, I was very thoughtful about selecting accounting over finance because I could do finance with an accounting degree, but I couldn't do accounting with a finance degree. 
So I thought that, well, I just get a degree in accounting. If I would prefer finance, well, I, I, can, I can move over. And that's, an, that's what I ended up doing, uh, actually. So do, do I, did I love every job I've had? No, um, but I'm really good at making the best out of a situation and finding um, things that give me the satisfaction that I need to keep moving forward. Uh, and oftentimes it's my interaction um, with people and finding, uh, in, in finding meaning in my work. And sometimes the meaning isn't related to the company or the organization or even the clients. The meaning can be something as just simple as coaching a colleague or ensuring that someone else is successful um, or just being part of a team. You know, I think, I think expecting to love what you do every day is too high of an expectation. And I think if you have that, you're gonna be disappointed that I, that, but again, there has to be some level of personal satisfaction. And I think I'm probably at the highest level of personal satisfaction currently that I've been in most of my career because of ESG investing. So you have to think about your career as a journey. You know, there's ups and there's downs and there's plateaus, but you just gotta keep moving forward and, and recognize that you sometimes have to make your opportunities and you have to always be looking out for something that you that, that might be a good fit for you and that people aren't, they're not just, they're not necessarily gonna fall in your lap. And people aren't necessarily going to just hand you them. You really have to take an active role in your career and try different things. Because I've tried a lot of different things. I mean, all within the financial services investing universe, um, you know, towards the end of my career, really found something that I am and can be passionate about. And that is, that is ESG investing. This podcast is brought to you by Adventurize, an online platform that provides one-on-one industry mentorship and career guidance tools. Are you interested in connecting with experienced professionals and industry experts to learn more about your field of interest? Then Adventurize is a platform for you. Follow Adventurize on LinkedIn at A-D-V-E-N-T-U-R-I-S-E or on Instagram at A-D-V-E-N-T-U-R-I-S-E or join our Discord community and our platform to help you find the mentors best suited to your needs. For more details, check the link in our description. So talking about, you know, financial independence again, um, I've seen that becoming a trend over the past several years where, you know, retiring early or, you know, hustling hard in your 20s to make sure that, you know, you have what you want during the later years of your life without feeling the need to be a part of that structure, uh, becoming a thing. So if I'm not being too intrusive, did you have any, you know, multiple sources of income that helped you reach that point? So I did, I didn't have multiple sources of income, nor did I have any support from my family. So I solely focused on work and I, and I, I'd say I probably worked, you know, you say work too much or whatever. I worked the amount I needed to, to, to be successful. And I don't regret working. I feel like I've had a wonderful life. I, I made sure to you know, do things, the d- things that I wanted to do, experience the things I wanted to experience. Um, 
you know, there are, you know, in life there's choices and there's consequences to every decision you make. So you have to make sure you weigh them. But I certainly am glad that I worked as hard as I did in my 20s and 30s um, because that made a big difference in my life today. And I know I'm gonna be able to retire, which is frankly, not everyone can say that. And I, and I, and I know I'm gonna be able to retire early. So, and I'm glad because I, I, I there's a lot of things I wanna do um, in my retirement, which, which, I, it, which is not necessarily hobbies or anything, but I feel like I wanna make a positive impact in my community and other communities. Um, and I'm gonna have, it's gonna be a gift to be able to do that. And I wouldn't have that opportunity if I didn't really kind of hunker down in my 20s and 30s. So it, it's good. It, it, it's just a trade-off. And I was young and, and I didn't need as much sleep. So I think it is definitely <laughs> the time to do it. Makes sense. Um, so going back to you know your experience as a venture capitalist, uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that? And um, you know what was it like working there? Uh, what did you learn? Um, you know, anything you want sure. to share about your times in VC? So I, so I uh, got into venture capital in the late nineties and that was really kind of in the heyday of the dot-com era. And before getting into venture capital, I didn't even really understand what venture capital was. So I kind of, I mean, I knew, I knew venture capitalists I had friends who were venture capitalists, but I didn't really, it wasn't yet a thing. I mean, it was a thing, but it wasn't like it, people weren't going to business school and uh, trying to get jobs in venture capital, private equity. I mean, it was still kind of small. And so, you know, it was new. And um, so I felt really fortunate to get uh, an opportunity to go into that field. What I loved about venture capital was the opportunity to work with entrepreneurs. And the firm I started working at, the first venture capital firm that I worked at was an impact firm, actually. And, and I think it was probably, it's definitely one of the first, if not the first impact VC fund. And they didn't even identify at the time as an impact fund because that, that term wasn't around. But the organization at the time um, was funded by the Massachusetts, um, by Mass the state government and a few large uh, banks in Massachusetts. Uh, it was an evergreen fund, which means we never went out and raised money. And so a lot of times in venture capital and private equity funds, they'll raise funds. They'll have, they'll raise a, back then they'd raised a $50 million fund and they'd invest all that money and, and, you know, and then distribute the earnings to the investors. And then they'd go raise another fund that's usually bigger than that and then make the investments. They keep doing that model. Um, the, the organization I was at, uh, it was an evergreen fund, meaning we didn't, we never raised money. What we did is whenever we had revenue, whenever we had wins, we just put that money back into our fund. So we didn't pay out large, uh, profits to our investors, but our investors weren't looking for that. They were, they, they had viewed their investment as more of, um, it, 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 we did, we did provide returns, but um, it, they were much smaller than a typical fund, but because the investors knew that this, our fund 
had more of an impact mission versus a financial mission. Um, so that was a little bit different of a structure. But what I loved about that particular organization is our mission was to look for companies that uh, were going to grow and add to the job market in Massachusetts. So we only invested in companies that were focused in Massachusetts and intended to stay in the state because um, otherwise it's not help necessarily helping the job market in Massachusetts if you're not here. And the companies were typically technology companies, um, almost exclusively technology companies in all very early stage. So oftentimes we were the first professional investors into a company, which means we were investing you know, smaller amounts, um, anywhere from 200,000 to a million dollars per um, investment in per company. Um, which is actually a very small amount. It wasn't as small then as it is now, but um, you know, more often than not, uh, venture funds have gotten so big that they can't invest small amounts like that. They have they have large minimums, so they won't invest in a company unless they can invest five million to ten million at a time. Otherwise, it would take them too long to identify companies to invest in. But what I really loved about that role was was get it. Learning about companies, I'd probably review 100 business plans a year and maybe make one to two investments. So you, I was meeting with a lot of people, hearing a lot of uh, business pitches, and just learning a lot about different industries uh, and opportunities that I wouldn't otherwise uh, get exposure to. So it, it was really interesting and a huge learning experience for me. What do you think are like the major skill sets one might need to be in uh, working uh, in venture capital? Yeah, I think one is that you need to be able to absorb a lot, a large amount of information and kind of understand the opportunities related to it. You have to like have a, a forward thinking kind of strategic mind um, all these opportunities that we looked at, you had you couldn't look at them like in a silo. You had to look at them, and you couldn't look at them as they were today. You had to think about what where their place was in the particular market, and what opportunities that they would that they possibly could have in the future. So you really had to be forward. You have to be forward thinking. Uh, you have to understand. Um, finance. I think that's important because the whole point of investing in these companies typically is to make a large return uh, down the road. So you have to be able to recognize the opportunities that this organization might have um, going forward. Uh, I, I think the model now has significantly changed. When I was in venture capital, most of us were generalists, meaning we looked at all different sectors. Um, whereas now, I think the model has shifted to special, a specialist model. So if you are a venture capital firm and you are investing in biotech companies, what they're looking for, those people are looking for is people with, with you know, biotech backgrounds, not necessarily finance backgrounds, who can help them assess uh, the business model or the proposition of the companies. Because it, it, if you don't have a background 
um, in, in that highly specific field, it makes it really difficult to understand how, if the technology even makes sense. Um, you have to depend on a lot of different outside advisors. So it, it just makes more sense to have those people internally um, working on these deals opposed to having to pull in external uh, talent. So, you know, if, if you have any sort of, uh, like, so engineers, biologists, uh, all kinds all kinds of folks from the different sciences and medicine can easily uh, convert that knowledge into uh, venture capital. Oftentimes they'll have a, they'll go back to school and get an MBA uh, either while they're working at the firm or after, because it is important to understand the financial markets as well. Uh, but you know that that knowledge is really important in in its in either side of the spectrum um, to a typical finance uh, skill set. Would you say uh, that makes more sense for someone to you know work for a few years and get like that specialized knowledge in a certain industry before sort of venturing into venture capital or uh, or you know right out of a college or a few years of work experience uh, works well too you know in venture capital they recruit people at all levels they recruit uh, people right out of school uh, and they recruit people as old as myself who spent careers in industry because there are, there's a number of different levels of experience needed to, for success. Um, you know, you need the people who, you need, who spent the last 20 years in the industry who really understand uh, the needs and the future um, as well as the evolution. But you also need junior people to you know, do some of the tasks that um, might be more analytical, uh, might be more focused on data, or just at um, a more highly granular um, that it's not necessarily a good use of time for someone uh, with a different uh, skill set to do. Um, so there's there's certainly all different uh, approaches. I think with venture capital, the, the most important, from what I, and this is my opinion, the most important aspect is to go to a good school and get good grades because most venture capital firms only recruit from the, the top tier schools uh, and they expect a very high GPA. So you have to be able to demonstrate um, you know, your ability to uh, absorb information and, and apply it. And, and if you're coming right out of school, you, the only way to do that is through grades and that's how they that's and also the interview i mean venture capitalists also tend to have a fairly high level of social skills um because it is definitely a relationship business that's interesting i'm, I'm kind of curious because you know when you uh, talk about you know the google and amazon and all of these you know big tech companies um you know th there's sort of been a shift from um college degree or that education towards more of you know hands-on skills and obviously that's a lot more easy to assess when you're working in tech because you know if you're able to have those technical skills it means that you'll be able to do your job well and that might be a little bit harder to gauge in industry like this but uh, I'm curious to know is this something you think has 
been changing or uh, has it largely remained the same? Just the perspective from the employers yeah. on hiring. Well, I think what's changed is when I was in school, most people who graduated with finance degrees wanted to go work for either an accounting firm, an investment, a top investment bank or something like that. Whereas what we're seeing now is, you know, the investment banks, you know, big asset managers and the big accounting firms are having to compete with organizations like Amazon and Google for top talent because top talent now has more options. So when I was in school, those companies really didn't exist. Um, we didn't have those big, cool technology companies that had, you know, pool tables in their offices and free snacks. Like that was not a thing. <laughs> so it's certainly more competitive for employers to attract the level of talent that they want. And, and a lot of the, the top talent in schools aren't going to the financial services industry. They're going to Google um, and they're employing their skills there because they need finance people, they need investment people too. So uh, I think that's what's changed. I think it's, it's harder for the, employer, the employee, employers to attract the talent that used to come much easier to them. So that's a good thing for the student or the employee, they have more options. Yeah, since you've done so many things over the past several years, um, I'm sure there might have been things that you failed at or really, really wanted uh, certain things to work and they just did not work for some reason. Um, how do you deal with those uh, feelings? Well, you know, here's the thing with that. So the older you get, the easier that is. Believe me, because what happens is sometimes you want something in life and, and you're heartbroken when you don't get it. But then later in life, you get something else that is way better than what you wanted before. And had you gotten the thing that you wanted in the past, you might not be in the place to get what you, you're get is really better for you in the future. And I think you really have to believe that. And that kind of goes with when one door closes, another one opens. Um, and because I, mean, I think in order to keep yourself sane, frankly, and moving forward, you, you have to really trust that, that, you know, sometimes we don't know what's best for us and we might really think we want something uh, and we might not get it, but that's not the end of the world. It's not the end of everything. That happens all the, that happens every day to, every, to people. So that's just part of, part of life. And we have to be able to kind of pick up ourselves and get over that and really know that, you know, we're all destined for a lot of things, not necessarily one thing. Um, and we also evolve as we get older and we're in most people who are young or in their twenties or thirties today, will be doing something 10 years from now that they don't even, they can't even imagine because it might not even exist. What would you say for someone who just doesn't know what their goals are? Someone who's ambitious, wants to do a lot of things in life, but just mm. simply isn't able to narrow down their goals or, you know, what they want to get out of their life. So I would look at, if, 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 if I was that person, well, first of all, I would make sure um, I did something to make that my general 
needs were met. You know, there's like the, I think it's called the Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? Mm -hmm. So if I are, if I was someone who had the uh, um, financial needs met, um, I would pro if I had all my financial needs met already, I would look to do something that I really enjoyed. And it can be something that is, I enjoy it. it it could be something that like a hobby, like I really enjoy fishing, or it could be something that makes me feel good. And that could be like volunteering or helping others. So in that sense, I wouldn't focus on a monetary um, goal because you, you, you're already there, you can pay your rent, you can pay your mortgage, you can buy groceries. But if you, if, if you really have, if you do have that, the fact that, financial factor in the equation, you have to kind of be more realistic in the sense that, well, I need to find something that I can do well enough and I, and I, I can stand, like you don't want to do something that you don't, that you hate. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's work. Okay. Ideally we would all have jobs. We get paid tons of money to do things we love to do. But frankly, no one's going to pay you, typically, no one's going to pay you a lot of money to, eat, to do something you love to do, okay? That's not work. That's fun, okay? And you don't get paid to have fun. Very few people get paid to have fun. So you have to recognize and adjust your own expectations that work is not meant to be fun nor enjoyable all the time, okay? You have to, you have to be mature and and take a perspective that it's up to you to find meaning in your work. And if you don't find meaning or satisfaction in your work, just doing the job, look around because you're the exact job. Like if your job was to paint walls, right? And you don't like painting. Well, do you like the interaction? Do you like being outside? I mean, you, you can find joy um, in your work, even if you, aren't necessarily thrilled about the work itself. But if you're not thrilled about the work itself, you should look, try other things. I mean, certainly try, try and keep trying. Um, eventually, hopefully you'll find something that you do like, or you might not like the job, but you might love the environment, or there might be something else that offers you meaning in the work. And, and very few people, you have to manage expectations too. Cause I think, I know your generation was told find something you love and do it. That's, yeah, I definitely wouldn't tell if I, I, we don't have children, but if I did, I definitely wouldn't. That's not, I don't think that's good advice <laughs> um, at all because it's not practical. Unless you have a trust fund, then it's practical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I have to say that's like the most pragmatic and you know, realistic advice related to career that I've come across um, in a while. And, and it's less about like, you know, real people in your life and just more about what you see online. I think, you know, just how things are portrayed or just the advice that's given. And it's hard to stay away from that too. It's not like, even if you're something um, in a career where you're like, hey, you know what? I don't absolutely love this job, but you know, it's providing for me. And it's letting yeah. me do the other things I want to do. But then when you see others around you, and I 
to this point of time in the history like you have a very clear picture on what others want to show you about their lives right so it But, does yeah. get really difficult and it's sort of hard to um you know ignore too so yeah it just puts a lot of onus on us to um try and hard well, to be um, satisfied with where you are i i would stop comparing yourself uh to others because you really need to determine what's going to make you happy regardless of what everyone else is doing because and remember that you're only seeing the shiny side of people's lives you're not seeing the whole picture so if you judge yourself on only the best parts that people want to share you're never going to be successful um because you're comparing yourself to to something that doesn't even exist because that's not who they are that's just a small piece of their life so don't do that it definitely and that's hard and and that's something that's easier when you get older because you realize that more you realize oh yeah that's really yeah that's that's kind of smoke and mirrors these people really aren't that's not how really how their life is it's more of that's what they want us to uh, they want to portray it as and what they want us to believe right yeah for sure and i think um yeah like that's absolutely one part of it and the other part is also just uh, you know the professions that you end up seeing that are like you know emerging now with content creation and influencer marketing and you know becoming a youtuber and all those things like i recently came across this study where um it was uh, done on uh, teenagers in the us specifically asking him them about you know what what is it that they want to do in their lives professionally and a significant amount of them i did say that they wanted to be uh, full time youtubers and uh when you see yeah. those things online uh, you see that um it seems fun right you're in front of the camera you're showing the world how fun your life is and all those kinds of things i mean regardless of what niche in content creation you choose but uh it seems easy but it's absolutely not too so this other side of it where uh, you know it's also very limited of a perspective on what that life can look like to mm-hmm. like it, like i have been wanting to start a podcast just so I, i could have you know interesting conversations like this but i absolutely had no idea how difficult you know managing audio would be to figure out you know how to edit <laughs> audio how to put music in the background how to reach out to people you know all those kinds of logistics that come with it right. uh, so yeah everything that you see it can be fake but also like just very limited in general so and you know editing videos is probably not as fun as making videos but that's a well, right well, that yeah that's right okay everyone wants to have a sausage but no one wants to see how the sausage is made because they're not <laughs> going to want the sausage if they watch how the sausage was made it's like work so behind the scenes is not pretty you know the making of a movie is not as glamorous as the movie Um you know if you ask the people who the young people who work on my team you know everything they do is not glamorous nor is it interesting okay sometimes i i ask them to do things that are boring dull laborious they don't really necessarily learning anything but they have to get done and when you're just starting out in an organization you know it makes more sense to have someone at the lower end of the pay scale do something of that's more laborious and of lower value than having a senior person who's getting paid much more to do it because it, it effectively costs the organization more to do 
you know, and that's where we have people at all levels. Okay. And, and when you, and sometimes when you do these tasks that seem ridiculous, you have to like stop and step back and say, okay, it seems ridiculous, but what am I learning here? And learn something because every, every task has an opportunity to learn if you look hard enough. And I think the people who do that and, and, and don't, you know, don't have a feeling of entitlement are, are going to be much more successful because if you go in with a great attitude, meaning that no task is too big or too small, um, and you do really good job work at a small task, people are going to hand you more important tasks. But if you can't do a good job at a very small, simple task, no one's going to trust you to do something more difficult. So it's certainly not good to take the attitude that any task is too small because that, that, that reflects poorly uh, on you. And, pe and I see people do that, which is unfortunate. The we're approaching towards like the last few sets of questions. Um, I'd love to know, and this question is a spin-off from um, How I Build This podcast. Uh, and I know you mentioned earlier that that's yeah. one of your favorite podcasts. So it's one of my favorite podcasts as well. I absolutely love it. Uh, every single episode I've listened to is just like, regardless of how difficult the you know lives of people sound, uh, it's motivating to me to a certain extent every single time. And for, and for me to start this podcast, how I built this was kind of an inspiration as well, because everything in that is, you know, the entrepreneurship perspective on career journeys. And I was like, why not start something that gives, you know, the corporate life perspective or just career journeys of people who have chosen to be in you know, certain kinds of jobs for several years and where things go from there. So yeah, I was excited to see that uh, that's one of your favorite podcasts too. Uh, but apart from that, um, is there any particular, you know, um, recommendation on books, social media podcasts, anything that you'd like to share that you uh, enjoy or any learning resources too? Yeah, and before I, before that, I want to say, you know, one of the things I like about Hidden Brain, it, uh, uh, or how I built this, sorry, mm -hmm. is that it, it it talks about, it really points out that, you know, success comes after many failures, okay? So people typically don't just succeed, like it's that easy, it's not, you know, a lot of times that you might try something and fail, but so you have to, you have to understand that failure is just part of learning and failure is part of success, you know? So don't let that, you know, demotivate you or distract you from really what you want to do because failure is just an opportunity to learn. And I failed many times and I don't know any successful people that have just been successful and that's just who they are. They're always successful. And if they tell you that they're not being honest. So don't believe anyone who tells you they never fail. So I think other than how I built this, and I, I do like Hidden Brain too, but I think probably my favorite podcast right now is Revisionist History. And the reason I love Revisionist History is that it points out that history is, the history that we learn is always or typically based on one perspective, that the past has more than one perspective. Everything does. So how you are viewing 
something is different than how others view something. So in that sense, there's multiple truths, okay? Life is filled with multiple truths. So just because someone doesn't agree with you or um, like you, likes you or values you, it doesn't matter because success isn't easy. And a lot of luck, there's a lot of luck in success as well. I think the luck part is, is something that people often underplay because everyone who's successful wants to think that they're successful because they're so smart and so good and so this and that. I think most, at least 50% of success, success to me is having you know, a skill or, or you know, knowledge or idea. Um, so th that's part of it. Working hard is certainly part of it. Uh, it's a big part of it, not giving up. Um, but luck, I think, is 50% of all success. So, you know, sometimes you just have to keep working hard until the opportunity presents itself. And that's the luck part. Love that. So, well, thank you so much for taking time.